Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. We have a very special guest today, uh, Catherine Platt is here. Hello, Catherine. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Good, good. Um, I want to pre- uh, thank all of the audience members for sticking with us here. I took a long break from my wedding, which was amazing, and it was sunny out, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I'm back, and we have some great new episodes for you. Starting with today, we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of pharmacy-related topics, specifically epinephrine, and we're going to do uh, kind of cool new idea called epinephrine at three levels. So we're going to talk about some scientific studies and data between the use of epinephrine in the EMT scope of practice, the AEMT scope of practice, and the paramedic scope of practice. Um, I remember watching a YouTube video uh, that said uh, the same topic explained in five levels, which I thought was really interesting. So they take, you know, like an astrophysics professor and they explain something to a preschooler and then to a grade school kid, then to a high schooler, then to a college student and, you know, graduate student and then like a fellow colleague. I thought it was really interesting to see how they change the way they explain it. And so we're kind of going to model that a little bit here today with talking about epi um, at the EMT, the AEMT and the medic level. A couple different uses we're going to go over, but um, I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So, uh, Catherine, welcome to the show. Um, if you want to tell everyone just a little bit about kind of what you do and how you got there, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so I'm an emergency medicine pharmacist. I just finished my um, specialty training residency at University of Vermont Medical Center. And prior to that, I did my first year of residency out in Seattle with UW Medicine. Um, so there's two hospitals in that system, Harborview and the University of Washington Medical Center. Um, went to pharmacy school at Northeastern University in Boston. Oh, nice. So that's nice. kind of what all led me up to here. Oh, perfect. That's great. We have a guy that works for the fire department that went to Northeastern too. Oh, great. Yep. I applied there, but it was a little too loud for me. I think it was pretty wild down there. So I'm sure you had a great time. Yeah. That's awesome. What's next for you? Do you know yet or just kind of? Not yet. Um, right now I'm taking some time off. I'm going to reattempt the long trail, kind of get oh, wow. some hiking and climbing in while I can. And oh, for uh, sure. we'll see what comes after that. Yeah. It's so entertaining that we talk with people that work in the healthcare field or in the fire and EMS profession and like the minute they get some time off, they're like, dude, I'm going to go climbing. I'm going to go like enjoy the outdoors because you never know what's next. And you know, as well as I do, when you're assigned to a hospital rotation, there's really not like a ton of time for all that. So that's great. Oh yeah. This is probably going to be the longest break that I've had since before pharmacy school. So yeah, Yeah, soak it up for sure. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it. Um, The first one I want to talk about is the use of anaphylactic epi. So one to 1000 epinephrine. Most of you know it as like adrenaline. It comes in a one milligram and one milliliter single, you know, vial there. Uh, Pretty much everyone carries it. Uh, The state uh, in Vermont actually moved to a ready check and check program. I'm sure you've heard a little bit about that, yep. which is really cool. Um, and from my understanding, a lot of it stems from the huge surge in prices when Mylan bought out, um, the EpiPen. Cause yeah. back in the day we used to have to use EpiPens as EMTs. Right. And the single use vials are so much less expensive than the EpiPens. And if you can train people on how to properly draw it up and administer it, I don't see why not. Exactly. Right. Yeah, for sure. And then it provides us the opportunity to instead of having, you know, four or five EpiPens per department, we might be able to have, you know, 10 or 15 vials of Epi spread out around a lot more units. Maybe now the, you know, the command cars and the fire marshals and those kind of periphery units can start carrying it, too. Um, Not to mention in more rural areas, you might have like a. Um, first responders now able to carry epi where in the past, maybe they don't want to buy 20 epi pens and replace them you know, every time. So, right. Especially with the expiration dating on yeah. the epi pen and with yeah. the cost associated. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, the study I wanted to look at today was from the journal of allergy and clinical immunology. 
And it basically was a study done on children, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, and they are looking at the uh, both intramuscular administration of anaphylactic epi, they're looking at subcutaneous administration of anaphylactic epi, and then they're looking at the difference between um, the site location, so the arm versus like the shoulder or the anterior lateral thigh. So in our protocol, when you look at anaphylactic epi administration for anaphylaxis, it talks about the anterior lateral thigh being the preferred site. And I know um, I was definitely guilty of this early in my career. I kind of uh, leaned more towards a shoulder pretty frequently just because it's so much easier. Like, and who wants to cut someone's pants off, you know, in the middle of Church Street? It's just, it's super uncomfortable. So it's way easier just to roll the sleeve up and give it in the arm. And I remember talking with one of the other, one of your coworkers at the ER, and the feedback I got was, hey, you know that there's actually really strong evidence showing that the thigh is uh, much more effective. And he even equated it to the fact that um, going in the arm is almost equivalent to the placebo in this perfect study. Yes, absolutely. And I think this study actually expanded um, beyond just children and looking at the absorption in adults too. And it's pretty incredible looking at the graph that they have in this study on the difference in the peak um, and how rapidly it's absorbed. Yeah, it's pretty slick. I'll make sure to put all of these studies in the show notes. Um, it's going to take me a minute. I just got to make sure that I do the right APA citations. I know we're working with academic stuff. Um, so I got to go pop open that back drawer in the back of my head and remember how to do all that. So I might use EasyBib. I'm not going to lie. I might have <laughs> to. So, uh, But I'll put these all in the show notes. Um, I'll definitely try to give you guys uh, links and access to the graph so you can see what we're talking about. I know I'm very visual and I think of myself as very data-driven in general. Um, and I kind of pride myself on going with whatever is the most evidence-based and proven, especially in these clinical trials. And when he showed me this graph and you look at the administration of epinephrine intramuscular in the arm um, is uh, only like a quarter as effective as epinephrine administration I am in the anterior lateral thigh. It's pretty crazy to, to think that you can give it in a different location be four times more effective. I think I'm definitely going that route. Yeah, and it's crazy as well. The The graph really shows the sub-Q in the arm is just as bad yeah. as the IM yeah. in the arm. Yeah. Um, so that only speaks to, you know, the absorption as well as the larger muscle volume and the larger blood flow to the area um, is really what drives this big difference between the thigh and the shoulder. Yeah, and it makes sense too if you think about the mechanism. I know in our EMT courses we talk a lot about, you know, distributive shock like anaphylaxis and the fact that you just have that peripheral vasodilation and like your blood just starts shunting everywhere and you're trying to like your body's just like, oh man, this is it. We gotta figure this out. Um, you wanna go in the areas where you're still getting good, reliable blood flow. Um, and the bigger muscle group, like we talked about, is the bigger muscle group. Um, I know I was always taught to stay away from the butt just because of the sciatic nerve and like there's some tissue damage. Um, and I don't think there's anything in our protocol um, or our scopes that's really looking to put meds in the butt for us. But is there any? Yeah. And if you look at even the package insert of the EpiPen, it specifically says do not administer in, in the glute. Um, and they've cited increased risk of tissue necrosis and clostridial infection as um, part of the reason why. So if you can give it to an equally large muscle without some of those same risks and side effects... That definitely should be the go-to. Yeah, for sure. That makes a ton of sense. Um, I know there was another piece of information I read. I don't know if it was in this article, but it talked about why the anterior lateral thigh is the preferred site. And what it was saying is that 
you still get a large muscle group, but you tend to collect a little bit more lipid tissue on the top of your thigh. So you don't want to go directly in the top. Um, and by going the anterior lateral area, um, you, have, you get a little more uh, better access with the needle right into the muscle group. So they just said a little bit about that. So because you really do want to go into the muscle. Um, right. The way I understand, there's not a ton of blood circulation through lipid tissue. It's more the muscular tissue that gets that high blood flow. Right, exactly. Yep. So you want that. Um, and like you talked about, it's it's the size of the muscle, I think. Something that was really interesting to me is uh, the way that this was measured in this study was in picograms per milliliter, which I'd never even heard of before. And I had to look it up because I was like, oh, picograms. I wonder how big that is. And it's one trillionth of a gram. Yep. So I can't imagine how they studied this or like they must use some crazy like electron microscope or something wild to... I don't even know how they do that. That's a lot. That's that's very small. So, uh, but they did do that. And and just for some data points for those of you that are um, kind of uh, more analytical people, um, basically they they administered the epinephrine. They administered it intramuscularly in the thigh, intramuscularly in the arm, um, subcutaneously in the arm. They did intramuscular saline and they did intramuscular. Uh, uh, sorry, they did um, intramuscular EpiPen use as well as saline subcutaneous. And they kind of compared all of them and traced them across uh, about 180 minutes. And they found that the large spikes within the first 10 minutes were specifically from the EpiPen in the thigh and the IM epinephrine in the thigh. Uh, all of the saline, the subcutaneous um, and the arm all kind of hovered right below 2,000 uh picograms and the spikes that happened with the intramuscular injections in the thigh, whether it was EpiPen or the intramuscular Epi was up around 8,000. So you're looking at basically sub 2,000 picograms per milliliter versus 8,000 picograms per milliliter, which is pretty significant difference. Um, and when you look at the graph, you'll see that there's, it's very hard to make the argument to go in the arm, even if it's easier to access. Yeah. And, you know, with something like anaphylaxis, this is going to develop rapidly and put people at real risk. So we want the most effective and the quickest route possible. Yeah, for sure. And I know on uh, one of the first pages of the abstract of this study, they said the strongest correlation to good outcome is early administration of epinephrine, which is why there's such a strong push to carry your EpiPen with you everywhere if you have a severe allergy. And I know that seems like common sense, but just remember that within the first 10 minutes is when these people are going to be seeing the greatest effects when they have a severe allergic reaction progressing into anaphylaxis. And um, when we talk about this uh, cardiac epi study in the AEMT part of the podcast that you'll see that the mean response time for ambulance is typically anywhere from six to eight minutes. So just remember, you're going to be arriving right as that kind of peak effect is happening. Um, so we really want the most bang for our back, especially when it comes to um, spiking the, you know, serum epinephrine that are giving it through the IM. So we really want to do that. So try to go on the thigh if you can. I know it's easier to go in the arm, but it, the data really does show it works better in the thigh. So try to go on the thigh. Yeah. And if it really comes down to it, if you need to go through the patient's clothes, I think that risk is worth the benefit of getting it into the thigh. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I think another little trick that we always teach people in EMT classes, just take a little pinch of their of their pant leg right where you want to shoot the injection and then take a pair of trauma shears and just cut that little spot mm -hmm. out and it gives you like a little dime size dime size hole you can get a little alcohol pad in there and jam the needle in rather than trying to you know unbuckle someone's pants and pull them down especially if they're freaking out because they're having an anaphylactic reaction sometimes just doing a little pinch with the fabric cutting a little pinch off gives you a little kind of porthole window um, and then you can save the little patch maybe they can sew it back on yeah so, that's a great idea exactly much less fabric loss so absolutely there you go perfect um, 
All right, great. So the next one I want to talk about is at the AEMT level. Um, Vermont's actually pretty cutting edge. Uh, I was really excited when um, over the last uh, protocol update, the state decided to reduce the amount of epinephrine that we're administering cardiac arrest. We got epinephrine a bunch of years ago for cardiac arrest. And um, the old school thought was every three to five minutes until you got ROSC or until you hit TOR. And that was pretty much the extent of it. And I think that's pretty classic around most of the country. You'll see that kind of under the ACLS and under a lot of people's protocols are just going to be giving it every three to five minutes. And they're just going to keep doing that until something happens. Um, And a lot of times you'll see, you know, someone go from a Sicily to PEA, but you won't necessarily get ROS, but sometimes you do. Um, and what I want to talk about with this study is why the state decided to limit it to about three doses. And um, the study that we're looking at here uh, is, I'm going to look up the name of this one. Um, it was the, it's called a randomized trial of epinephrine in out of hospital cardiac arrest. Um, and I looked at this through the New England Journal of Medicine. Like, again, I'll put this in the show notes as well, too. Um, Are you familiar with this one? Yep. It's even got a fun little abbreviation called the Paramedic 2 trial. Exactly. Yeah. And I love researchers and anybody in the healthcare system because they do such a great job of moving those words around to find the perfect acronym, you know, crash and epic and like all these really, you know, uh, procameo, like that's a great like abbreviation of two drugs. Um, So the Paramedic 2 stands for the pre-hospital assessment of the role of adrenaline measuring the effectiveness of drug administration and cardiac arrest. Someone sat down and worked on that. Yeah. Someone came up. It's a mouthful for sure. It is. They definitely did that. Um, So basically what they're looking at is how effective is epinephrine? And then is there a kind of a therapeutic window that we're looking for to get the maximum amount of uh, potential ROSC, but also limiting the amount of brain damage. So they did this huge study. Um, I will be able to tell you the uh, numbers in just a second. Um, but basically what they did is they separated people into two groups. They gave people, some people got epinephrine and some people didn't get epinephrine. And they looked at how many people uh, had ROSC, how many people went to the hospital, how many people required epinephrine infusions in the hospital. And they looked at um, survival after 30 days. And then they looked at neurological outcome. And so in summary, and remember, I'll put this in the show notes too. But in summary, what they found is that the more epinephrine you give, in general, the more likely they are to have a return of spontaneous circulation and make it to um, either the ED, the ICU and kind of make it with a heartbeat. However, they determined that there was no significant difference in the patients that had good neurological outcome. Both groups, the patients who had good neurological outcome in general were about the same. However, there was a large amount of patients that got high doses of epi that had very poor neurological outcome. So in summary, basically what it's saying is the more epinephrine you give, the more likely you are going to get a heartbeat back. But as that epinephrine increases, the less likely they'll have a good neurological outcome. Yep, they found about 36% were um, getting ROSC versus about 12% um, with the um, high dose epi group compared to placebo. And then the people that were making it to the hospital, there's only about 50% um, in the epi group compared to about 30% in the placebo group. So there definitely is a statistically significant and, and a clinically significant benefit there. Um, but the, the hard part is really this poor survivability with neuro, like good neuro outcomes. So, you know, if you're going to increase someone's chance of making it, but they're going to be disabled or, um, you know, have require all these burdensome medical therapies or, um, need a home health aid or family member to take care of them for the rest of their life. 
Is that really something that people are going to want? Yeah, exactly. And the actual numbers for this one is they found that about 39 of 126 patients, about 31% of the epinephrine group were survivors with very severe neurological deficits compared to 16 out of 90, which is about 17% um, of the placebo group. So when they received high, uh, high doses of epinephrine during the cardiac arrest resuscitation, you're about double, about the double the number in the epinephrine group had severe neurological injuries, um, but were surviving out of hospital. So exactly like you said, I mean, that's um, that's something that they did some research on and they asked, you know, groups of people subjectively, Hey, if you, if you had a higher likelihood to survive a cardiac arrest with this drug, but there's a higher likelihood you'd have poor neurological outcome and you'd re require, you know, um, I think they call it like burdensome treatment algorithms. Would you want us to resuscitate you knowing that there's a higher risk of poor neurological outcomes? And the feedback from that was actually overwhelmingly no. People do want to survive, but with the thought of surviving with a severe neurological injury, a lot of people said they would actually rather expire and not survive rather than live with a severe neurological injury that required burdensome treatments, which is really interesting. And like we talked about a little bit in the pre-show, brings up kind of the ethical healthcare question of right. if you're there making these resuscitation decisions... I mean, that's what the people are saying, but do we have an obligation to give a drug that we can give a heartbeat back, especially when we don't, um, in the pre-hospital system, we don't have the ability to do those neuro assessments. We may not have any idea what type of injury they have, you know? Right. And it's really not until kind of post-ROSC and in that recovery phase that you can really prognosticate and see um, what these people are dealing with, but it makes sense, right? The more epi you give, the longer time that these patients are coding, the longer time that they're not receiving as much oxygen, um, as their brain really needs. And so they're suffering these anoxic brain injuries or, or other, um, you know, injuries causing them to be disabled. So, yeah, exactly. This, this study does have a little specific uh, pathophys piece, piece in here, which I love pathophys. I think it's like super cool. I just, every time we do a program, I try to like kind of emphasize anatomy, how it's shaped, physiology, how it works, and then the pathophysiology of what's broken. And if you just kind of think of those three things over and over again, you can pretty much work through any EMS call. Um, but basically what it talks about, um, is one explanation is that it increases macroscopic cerebral blood flow, but it paradoxically impairs cerebral microvascular blood flow, and it worsens the brain injury after ROSC, which is one of the reasons why you might see that. Um, it also says that the brain is going to be more sensitive to ischemia and reperfusion injury um, and w may not function very well after the restoration of circulation, more so than the heart and other organs. I think it's not a shock that the, that the brain is very... Um, picky. It's like very particular. It's a very sensitive organ. Oh, yeah. um, any sort of interruptions in blood flow or sugar or oxygen um, tend to have a really terrible effect. If you want to learn more about brain injuries in general, I encourage you to check out our TBI podcast. We had uh, attending physician Dr. Doug George on the show, and we talked a lot about kind of the importance of um, dealing with primary and secondary brain injuries. And it talks a lot about oxygenation and um, hypotension and all those other issues that we run into. Um, but Basically, what it's saying is by reducing this cerebral blood flow um, microscopically, you're going to cause all these brain injuries. And then once you have a severe brain injury, um, the brain does not heal very well in general. Right. Yeah. Um, one interesting piece it does talk about, though, is the only uh, the only research that supports 
treatment for brain injuries in this setting is uh, the use of controlled temperature management does affect some of it on the patients, which is kind of interesting. So Yeah. And there actually was a, a study that just came out very recently, the... Um, I believe it was called the TTM2 trial, looking at targeted temperature management and how it impacted outcomes. And I believe what they found was um, that really avoiding fever was the biggest thing. Um, But cooling may not have as much benefit as we originally thought. We did do a pretty cool um, trial in Vermont. I'm not sure if you're here or not. Back in the day, we did used to use cooling collars and um, axillary cooling um, for post-cardiac arrest patients for that exact reason. I think we were part of one of those trials. Um, But I think you're absolutely right. All the research I've seen is that just don't let the brain get hot at all. That's like terrible. We know that's terrible. Um, And then if it's anywhere from, I think it was like... 95 to um, normal, you know, anywhere in that area is like going to be totally fine. And I think we were looking at, I think they were targeting us towards like 90 ish. I can't remember exactly, but in between 90 and 95. So it wasn't like significantly cold, but um, that's a really good point for sure. Um, and if you're interested, that study that they use to look at the subjective reporting of individuals based on their healthcare treatment preferences um, was called the COSCA study, um, Core Outcome Set for Cardiac Arrest. Um, not as cool of an acronym as paramedic two, um, but there's some pretty cool ones, crash, epic. Those are kind of my, my favorite ones so far. So, um, they do a really good job coming up with the acronyms. I really like it. Yeah. Um, It's always interesting to see the creativity behind it. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you be creative if you were sitting in the laboratory all day long? I mean, I would sit there. I'd definitely come up with some good ones. So Lots of time to think about it, at least for sure. That's probably the easiest part of the study is coming up with the acronym. Compared with all the, you know, quantitative data and the Which research. Which outcomes and, to look at. Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. No. So the last one I want to talk about um, is going to be at the paramedic level. It's related to push dose presser. Um, it's something that's kind of uh, come into play over the last few years, especially in our district. Um, a lot of more people are doing it. I know that I uh, had an opportunity to do it a few times over the last two years, and it does work pretty slick. Um, however, it's, uh, can be pretty challenging math sometimes, especially if you're in the field and a lot of stuff's going on. One of the disadvantages we have in the field is the fact that we tend to be alone. So there's not always someone that can check with you. I mean, you can give someone a math problem, but, um, if they don't know the correct dosing, they may not be able to really support you that well. Um, one thing, uh, one caveat I'll give you right off the bat when we talk about medication errors is when we go through this study, just remember that, um, only one documented error had a pharmacist present out of all the errors that they recorded. And that error had to do with the nurse uh, dispelling the syringe plunger too quickly. It didn't actually have anything to do with math or dosing. So just remember that when you, if you work in a hospital system, if you have the ability to include an ED pharmacist when you're making medical decisions, um, it definitely has been scientifically proven over and over and over again. It dramatically reduces medication errors. Love the shout out. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, you guys work hard. No, I appreciate it. Um, and obviously doing my rotations at UVM, I was lucky enough to see a lot of the specific ED trained pharmacists helping out and um, and you know, in injuries and illnesses that came in. And it was really nice to see how kind of uh, forward of a role they had. One of my favorite pharmacy memories was I was doing clinical and a guy who had burned himself up in a meth lab came in. It was severe burns all over. And it happened, I think, like 
maybe eight or 10 hours ago was a transfer from another facility. So there was some concern about hyperkalemia and stuff like that. Um, and they were trying to intubate him and he was pretty agitated and they asked for succicoline for mm. a paralytic. And the pharmacist that was working um, just said, go fish. And then they picked another one. They're like, oh, how about rock? And he's like, all right, we could do that one. And I just thought it was funny. They said, go fish. Yeah. Said, oh, okay. <laughs> I can imagine who said that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think we both know. But it's super funny. Go fish. She's like, okay, rock. Okay, sounds good. And that was just that's just another way, like, like we talked about. I mean, if you just had a physician or a provider and a nurse in there, they're going to do whatever the physician says. And a lot of these studies um, in that healthcare system, it's looking at, you know, the physician asks for an order, the nurse prepares the order, and maybe um, they're kind of ingrained in that hierarchy. And maybe they don't always feel empowered to speak up and be like, hey, what are we worried about hyperkalemia? But if there's an ED pharmacist there, I mean, that's that's your realm. That's your job, you know, and you guys are pulling meds and doing your thing. So um, as we go through the study, just remember, if you guys do work in a hospital system and there's a pharmacist around, um, you know, don't just let them sit down there on the computer. Go talk to them. Make sure like you include them in your decision making. You guys have been awesome with me on calls. and I really appreciate it. Um, I definitely learn a lot. Um, even something simple like the epi that came from an ED pharmacist talking to me and having this discussion and showing me the study. And I was like, oh, man. Guess I'm going on the thigh now. Like, <laughs> you know, it's irrefutable evidence. What are you going to do? So, um, but anyway, so the study that we're looking at here is uh, called Human Errors and Adverse Hemodynamic Effects Related to Push Dose Pressors in the Emergency Department. Um, this one does include phenylephrine. Uh, it is in the paramedic scope of practice nationally. We don't typically use it um, on our ambulance. Um, and I don't think it's used very much um, in Vermont, but um, we do we do have that in our scope. Um, so it's just for those of you that are listening, you may be familiar with that. But um, basically what they looked at is uh, during the administration, uh, it's about 98 patients that they studied and about 47 of them had some type of error. Uh, Seven patients had a dose different than the intended dose, which were all overdoses. There wasn't a single underdosing of any push dose presser. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, just with the way we mix it, why that is. Um, and the vast majority of them, about uh, um, 43 of those patients had documentation errors. So not necessarily something that's going to affect their care in this particular acute setting, um, but just poor documentation of dosings, not the best in general. I mean, you want to make sure you understand what the concentrations are. Um, and I think I read back in the day that epinephrine is one of the most misadministered drugs because it's used for so many things and there's so many different concentrations and so many ways to push it and mix it and do whatever. Right. Um, I mean, we've already talked about three and that's just for those three settings, not to mention all the other things you can do. Yeah. And it, and definitely between the way that it's labeled to one to 1000, whereas a lot of drugs are more moving towards, okay, this is 1% or 10% or whatnot. And I think kind of having that other labeling makes understanding what you're actually giving and the math a little bit less challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So at, at its most basic principle, the idea behind push dose pressors is they did a bunch of research and they found that whether you have an ED pharmacist present or not, it takes about eight minutes from the time that a, an infusion of pressors is called for to the time that the infusion is running to the patient just between pulling the med, mixing the med, putting it on the pump, getting it hooked up, and hitting start, it takes about eight minutes to do all those things. And that's pretty consistent across the board for pre-hospital and in-hospital um, resuscitation care with any type of press. It doesn't matter if it's norepi, epi, whatever. It's usually about the same. So what we looked at in the state of Vermont and what a lot of these studies look at is how do we bridge the gap during that eight minutes? So you 
cellular pressure, you know, say for whatever reason, say you have septic shock, right? Or let's just talk about the most common one in this study, which is post-ROSC hypotension, right? So that you get someone back from a cardiac arrest and they have hypotension. Their monitor pops up. It's like 50 over 30. It's going to take you, statistically, it's going to take you eight minutes to set up an infusion of pressors and get that flung in the patient. So what do you do for those eight minutes? Well, their MAP is significantly below 60 um, and you have to treat them. So push dose kind of came into the realm. And the idea behind it is you're giving small doses of um, epinephrine to a patient, IV push in order to kind of bump that pressure up while you're getting fluids going and getting all those other pressors going. Uh, Typically what we're looking for is you know, anywhere from five to 20 micrograms in most places. Uh, There are some pieces of evidence in the back of the study that talk about places that try to do 50 mics. um, And the way that they do that is um, by not diluting their epi, which is pretty wild. And they use a stopcock and use like tiny amounts of fluid. Um, And I'll talk about that at the end. But basically what they found with that is that uh, people thought they were giving really accurate doses and they used a computer to measure how much they were giving them. And most people, the average dose they were giving was 100 micrograms. When they were eyeballing, they felt like they were giving 50 and they felt very confident about it. And the average dose was 100. Which is terrifying. A lot. That's a huge dose of epinephrine. Yeah. Well, especially yeah, when yeah, we yeah. only want 5 to 20 mics of Exactly, it. Yeah. right? Yeah. So, so the way that uh, most people are taught is you take a vial of cardiac epinephrine. So it's 1 milligram and 10 milliliters. You expel one milliliter on your 10 ml syringe of saline and you drop one milliliter of the uh, cardiac epi solution and then you mix that up and theoretically that'll give you 10 micrograms per ml that's not right i'm really bad at math uh yep yes because you're pulling out 100 micrograms from your cardiac epi and you're diluting that out so yeah into into nine milliliters of saline in the syringe plus the one milliliter that's in your solution. So, Correct. so basically you're getting 10 micrograms per ml. The, the most common uh, thing that freaks me out is when you mix it that way is like, I usually have my shaking hand, put a medication tag directly on the syringe as soon as possible because it terrifies me because that syringe looks like all the other syringes looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I want is, you know, a EMT or an EMT helper like, oh, I'll flush a line for you. And then they hammer, you know, a hundred micrograms of epinephrine in there. So I pretty much like hold it in my Kung Fu grip until it's marked. Um, sometimes <laughs> I'll even mark it before I do it just because it makes me nervous. Um, and one of the studies that we looked at here, talks about the nurse pushed the syringe too quickly. The issue with having 10 micrograms per ml is if you kind of forget what you're doing and you push the syringe too quickly, you can bump up your micrograms relatively quickly. You know, even just giving half of one saline flush, you're giving 50 mics, which is a lot of, which is a lot of epi. The research in this study said that anything over 100 micrograms IV at one time is pretty statistically significant with ventricular tachycardia. And both of the lethal arrhythmias in this study were specifically from overdoses of medication above 100 um, micrograms at one time. So you think about that, it's just a flush. You know, if you forget to label it and you push that whole flush, you just put yourself at a statistically significant risk of VTAC, which I would probably not like to do on my sick patients. Yeah, if we could avoid that as much as possible, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah, so, and it's interesting in the study, it talks about how every single misadministration of medication was overdosed. There wasn't a single underdosing of any medicine. 
regardless of how they mixed it. I think part of that is because when we're working with these push dose pressors, you're working with a very small volume. Like the medicine is, you know, you're talking about micrograms per milliliter. So it's very concentrated, but the volume is very small. I mean, 10 in the way we just mixed it, one syringe is a hundred mics. Right. Which is a lot, especially when we're talking about, you know, five, 10, you know, 15, 20 micrograms um, as a push dose. And usually it's every three to five minutes titrating to a map greater than 60 is kind of what we typically do. Um, so you definitely run into that problem. Uh, there's an alternative way to mix it that I also learned when I went through my flight program, which is taking one milligram of anaphylactic epi and then putting that in one liter of a crystalloid solution, typically normal saline, but it can be kind of whatever. Um, and what that gives you is one microgram per ml. So now if you drop 10 mLs in your syringe, you only have 10 mLs in that syringe. I like the idea behind that because you're mechanically limited from overdosing your patients to a certain degree. Like you have to consciously make an effort to overdose them. It looks goofy. Like if you were to give them 20 mLs of saline and pulling that off of a bag, that feels like a big dose. Right. Because it's a big syringe. It feels big. So that's kind of like your little safety net there. Um, it's worth mentioning too that the most statistically significant mixing error that happened is either physicians or nurses pulling anaphylactic epi into a 10 ml syringe. Mm. It's the most statistically significant. Most of the medication mixing errors were instead of using cardiac epi to mix their solution, giving them 10 micrograms per ml, they were using anaphylactic epi, which is one to 1,000, right. giving them 100 per right. ml. Yeah. Which is a huge difference. Yeah. And then, like you think about that, you you push two mLs and thinking you're giving 20 micrograms and you just gave 200. Now you're at a very sig statistically significant chance of VTAC, which is not amazing. Right. So, yeah. And I think that's that's one of the biggest issues really with push dose pressers is education on and making sure that there is some sort of protocol um, that staff are trained on. And, you know, really this was... Initially, when this was first kind of coined for outside of the OR use, um, it, it's meant really for peri-sedation or peri-intubation, uh, hypotension, and kind of this transient bridge to something else. Yeah. So either bridge to waiting for the sedative to wear off or bridge to starting an infusion and those sorts of things. And I think... Um, you know, there's been some other data that's published um, kind of looking at this same sort of thing. And again, they're finding that patients are experiencing wild swings in blood pressure or they're getting overdoses that are not intended. Um, and maybe it's some of that education piece that that's lacking in um, in the study that I'm specifically thinking of it was put out by uh, Dr. Kisto and colleagues. They found that um, some people were receiving push dose pressors even when their blood pressure wasn't that soft to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just really interesting to see the more that we're examining this, um, where some of the flaws in this concept are. Um, but again, I think, you know, push dose pressors in the pre-hospital setting may be a lot more appropriate than yeah. push dose pressors in the emergency department or in the ICUs. Yeah, and it, it did talk a little bit about how some hospital systems are trying to mitigate this. One of the ways is apparently there's no commercially FDA approved concentration of one ml with 10 micrograms in it is what the study was saying. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's, it's saying that no 
No drug organization sells that concentration, 10 micrograms per ml. Right. Yeah. You can get like 30 ml, one milligram per ml vials, or you can get the one ml version of that, or you can get your standard cardiac epi concentration. But other than that, there's really not a lot of options. Yeah. And one of the things that they're saying is some hospital systems have identified this as such a potential error that they'll actually have their pharmacists pre-mix those down to one ml with 10 micrograms in it. That way, you know, if there's some sort of like, you know, arrest box or code box that can be in there as a push dose and labeled as such. I don't know what the the way that that's stored or how they do that, but it just said in the study that some places are doing that for this reason. Right. And at least at, um, you know, UVM, we do have pre-mixed epinephrine infusions, um, but those have to be refrigerated. And then you have to think about the expiration date associated with it. And so if you're not using it frequently and you're outstocking it, then um, that may not be feasible for many institutions. Yeah. And not to, uh, nothing against my doc friends. I got a lot of doc friends, but the study also says that multiple studies have demonstrated that physicians specifically are generally very poor at dilution and dosage calculation and that these skills may worsen during a stressful situation like a resuscitation, which is when push dose pressure is going to be used. You're never going to be using push dose pressure on a completely healthy patient. Like you said, usually it's going to be somebody that's tanking and you need it quicker than eight minutes. Um, and so just remember that, you know, these are skills that we don't maybe use every day, but the math can get very complicated very quickly. Um, and especially when you're bouncing around the back of the ambulance, I know I've struggled with it before. Um, and it's really nice having another paramedic with you so you can kind of walk through it together and make sure that you're not going to make those mistakes. Yeah. Having a double check, um, with any sort of high risk medication, is always a good idea, but especially for something like push dose pressors, where if you pull up too much epi to dilute it out, you're going to have a large um, increase in, in adverse events associated with giving such a high dose yeah. unintentionally. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And uh, just to illustrate this point a little bit before we sign off here, um, one of these cases inside of this study that we're talking about was a hundredfold overdose. So a hundred times what it should have been. And the patient had a blood pressure of 70 over 30, uh, was administered this dose of medication that was a hundredfold over and the blood pressure increased to 215 on 60. Um, specifically targeting the sympathetic nervous system. This particular case was phenylephrine. Um, So you're going to get a lot more of that uh, sympathetic nervous system push. Um, And then the docs recognized it quickly, which was great. And they just repeatedly started slamming propofol. And after 12 minutes, they got them to 108 systolic. Um, And this patient actually had good neurological outcome and was discharged okay without any adverse effects. But you can see how quickly that pressure can drive up. Um, And I can't imagine that that's amazing for the brain to have that big swing of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, just remember, you know, as we go through the key takeaway points today are, you know, if you're giving anaphylactic epi, just please use the thigh. All the data shows that we'll put it in the show notes so you can read the study yourself. I know it's easier for the arm. Trust me, I've been there, but um, thigh really works the best. Every piece of data shows that um, for AEMT, follow our protocols, um, try to balance the use of 
cardiac epi so that we're getting the best effect towards ROSC, but we're not causing that intense micro uh, constriction of the vessels inside of the brain, which is leading to poor neurological outcomes. Um, you know, we carry three in our bags now. And once you're done with three, you're done with three. If it's going to do something, it does something. Um, other than that, there's really no reason to continue. You're just reducing the um, likelihood of a good neurological outcome. And with push dose pressors, be cautious of your math. Remember that the most common mistake made by providers both in and out of the hospital is using anaphylactic epi to mix their dose rather than cardiac epi. Um, and just be, you know, label your syringes, good hygiene in the back of the ambulance. Uh, do not, uh, don't hesitate to use your ED pharmacist. Remember that um, if you read through the study, only one of them had an ED pharmacist present and that mistake had to do with the way the nurse pushed the med. It had nothing to do with the pharmacist. Um, it dramatically reduces errors out of almost 100 people in this study. Um, not one of them had an error when a pharmacist was present. So just remember that um, they can definitely really be helpful and an asset to you. Um, Catherine, anything else you want to add here? I mean, we talked about a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I think one other thing to think about as well with um, specifically with you know, limiting your number of doses of, of epi in a cardiac arrest situation. The longer the code goes on, the more acidotic the patient's going to become. And epi is one of those drugs that if a patient is acidotic, if their blood pH is low, they're not going to respond as well to it. So you're giving a medication that may not even really be working beyond that, that three doses. Yeah, so. that's a really good point. Actually, I remember we had a patient that we actually did give push dose pressure on a COPD patient who had a respiratory arrest into a cardiac arrest. We got ROSC um, profoundly hypotensive throughout, regardless of what we did with push dose and norepi and all that other stuff. And we got to the hospital and it was um, Dr. Carson was there and he talked about how not only do your vasopressors are become less effective when I think his pH was like six, eight or something. So oh, he's wow. really yeah. low. Yeah, he was really bad. Um, but, you know, those get less effective, but also your your vasoconstriction and your uh, vasodilation, the actual process that your body's using to control blood pressure completely deteriorates below 7.0. It just can't compensate. So that's a really good point that, you know, what are we doing hammering this person with all this epi, you know, and all of a sudden you're, you know, not, you're not really doing much and you're potentially causing a severe neurological deficit. Right. So got to be careful of that. Um, not to mention there's, there's been talks too of if you hammer all these drugs into someone and they're not really having good perfusion, you know, where are those drugs going? And then if all of a sudden you have ROSC and it just blasts the whole body with this big kind of storage of epi that you just pumped into them. I mean, that's not good either. So sure. you got to be careful, but all right, Catherine, well, thanks for being here. Um, we really appreciate it. And hopefully those of you that are listening today picked up some new information. And uh, if there's one thing you take away from this podcast is don't be afraid to go say hi to the pharmacist at the end of the desk there. They're really nice. Um, all of them can help you out. And every time I've talked to them, I've learned something. So um, don't underestimate the help that the pharmacist can give you. Thanks for having me on the show, Nick. Yeah, you got it.